This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 343. And the quote of the day is, sometimes you have to stop being scared and just go for it. Either it will work out or it won't. That's life. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond and beyond and beyond. What is going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here. I hope everyone is doing well, and I hope you had a fantastic weekend. And if you are into this podcast, if you dig the podcast, if you want to help support the podcast, I ask that you visit our Patreon page. And Patreon is a way for you to donate to the podcast on a monthly basis at whatever amount you'd like. You can do a dollar a month, $2 a month, $5 a month, all the way up to $100 a month. And with those increments, you get different prizes and you get different swag and all kinds of different stuff. So you can check that out and every dollar helps. So if it's a dollar or two or three, don't think, oh, it's not going to do anything. I'm not going to do it. I would appreciate it if you did that. If you get any value out of this podcast, please support it by going to our Patreon page. The easiest way to get there is just go to drummersresource.com forward slash support, S-U-P-P-O-R-T, and it'll bring you to our Patreon page. Or if you're on Patreon, just search for Drummers Resource. And speaking of support, support for this podcast also comes from our friends at DW Drums. And DW has been supporting this podcast since the beginning, and they foster this podcast podcast and other drumming initiatives all over the world, and they have been doing so since the 70s. You can learn more about them, their great products, and everything that they do there at DW by going to dwdrums.com. Now let's get into this conversation. This is a great conversation with Jeremiah Freights, and Jeremiah is the drummer for the Lumineers. I'm sure that you've heard of that band. They are uh, a pretty big deal, and this conversation is really cool. We talk about we talk about how they started. They started in in New Jersey, New York area, and then moved to Colorado, and and the whole story behind that is really amazing. And then we talk about song structure we talk about how he how jeremiah as a writer as a drummer crafts drum parts and he thinks of himself thinks of himself more as you know uh, an artisan of of songs and a musician versus just being a drummer so really great insights into that and we talk about all sorts of stuff about how they grew the band from nothing to where they are now to playing you know madison square garden and all all the things in between in between about all of those stepping stones about getting management and getting a record deal and and you know getting from one level to the next and getting people to come to your shows and touring and all that kind of stuff. So just a ton of information from a man who has been there, who has done that and is continuously doing that now. So without further ado, I want to get into it with the one and only Jeremiah Freights. Jeremiah, what's happening, man? How are you making out today? I'm doing well. I'm uh, talking to you from my home in Denver, Colorado, and uh, yeah, pleasure to be here. So, how long you've been in Denver? Denver since what? 2008. I think so. I think it's been about. It's almost ten years. I, I've lost track of the actual number, but it's been about ten years. Yeah. Okay. So we're we're actually previously where we were pseudo neighbors. So I I lived in in Hoboken for. Uh, no way. Yeah. For almost almost six years i was there that's where i actually i started the podcast and everything so i was i was checking out doing some research on you and i was like oh he's from ramsey 
So the band, yeah, we're from Ramsey. Me and Wes uh, grew up together, and we used to try to play gigs. I think we played once or twice at the Goldhawk in Hoboken. The Goldhawk? Um, I think it was called the Goldhawk, and then there was Maxwell's. You know, you played Maxwell's? at Maxwell's, right? Yeah, of course. No, we never. Oh, you never, never played did, there? They never took us. We were never good enough back then. So uh, that was always like the coveted, like golden tier. Wow, if we could play at Maxwell's, even to open up for a band, that would have been yeah, um, like winning the lottery first. And we never got a chance to. So I think we only played at this lesser known place. I think it was called the Goldhawk a couple of times. Um, and I'll leave it at that. But that. yeah. <laughs> Well, the interesting thing about Maxwell is that it's such a, I mean, it's not that big of a place, but everyone has played there. Like, you know, REM has played there and Nirvana and, you know, so it's such, it's an iconic place. And it's so funny, you know, it's like for those people who don't know about Hoboken, like it's such a small town. And, but they get these these even even like bands that are starting to get bigger. They still want to come and play at Maxwell's just because it's an iconic venue. Sure. Well, it's close enough to the bigger town of New York City, so it's a good selling point. I think that yeah. it's just to hop over, hop over the river, and then you're there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, talk to me a little bit about you're growing up in Ramsey. When did you start playing? I mean, were you always into playing, or or was it something that you picked up later on in life? So, growing up in Ramsey, I it was pretty common for the teachers throughout many grades to say, like, you know, stop banging on the desk because I, I didn't even know I was doing it. I would had this sort of for lack of a better description, kind of an OCD. I was always tapping on my foot or tapping on the desk in class. I didn't realize I was even tapping. I think I just was born with this affinity or for this kind of connection to some sort of rhythmic, to just rhythm in general. And I, I kind of, oddly enough, learned drums first on the piano. My buddy had this amazing synthesizer with really lifelike drum sounds and these awesome speakers. So we would actually jam. I would play drums on his synthesizer keyboard and he would play actual guitar and it was kind of a that was kind of the first way I learned how to play drums was on this keyboard, which sounds weird. Hmm. And then I got I got my first drum set in the summer between eighth grade and freshman year of high school. And I just remember trying to learn um, "You Shook Me All Night Long" by AC/DC, which has to be one of the easiest drum songs ever. And it took me just forever to even understand. You know that beat is like duke duke duke. And after the after the first chorus, there's this little tom fill where he does like do do do. I think it's literally that. And going from the beat to incorporating that tom fill and going back to the beat, I just was like, I'll never play drums. I found it so discouraging and so frustrating. Really, the the coordination of it all, it just was really mind boggling to me. And then I just became really obsessed with it. And I actually have something to show you. So growing up, um, people probably don't. Well, I'll say this: people probably would never see the connection between where the Lumineers are today and my musical backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a drummer live, and in the studio I play drums, but in the studio I also play guitar and piano, and I write all the music with the singer Wes. And I grew up with people like this. This is actually a, uh, I don't know if you can see it. Let me see if I can pan out. This is a drumstick I'm showing you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a drumstick from my one of my great buddies back in Ramsey, New Jersey, and it was, he was at a 311 concert. And Chad Sexton threw one of his sticks into the crowd, and my buddy Justin got it and gave it to me as a birthday present. So it's been behind me in, in my own little personal studio here at my house. And really, that's how I kind of grew up on music with drums. It was like, if it was complicated, if it was, yeah, the more complicated, the better when I was younger. You know, when I was 14, 15, 16, uh, bands like Planet X with the mm-hmm. drummer, um, 
that guy, the Australian. He's uh, Virgil Donati. Mm-hmm. Uh, Three Eleven, of course. Chad Sexton. Earlier, Chili Peppers. You mentioned Chad Smith before. Just really uh, Dream Theater, Metallica. Really anything that was complicated, and if it had a time signature, even better. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's how I kind of. That's how I kind of grew up with my you know introduction to music i just really loved i was really drawn to complicated and really fast and heavy tool that album um Uh, lateralis is one of my favorite drumming albums of all time it's just note for note it's just so powerful and profound and potent from a drummer's perspective um and a musical perspective of course but which is interesting to me because all of that stuff is is a departure from the stuff that you play now so you know what happened? I think I've, I've thought about this a lot. I think it was all that complicated stuff. And it was almost like, you know, it was, this, it was this really profound full circle thing for me where I'm 31 today. And I think it was probably around 24 to 25 in my life. So about six or seven years ago when we started writing the first album, um, me and Wes, the singer, we'd probably written and recorded about close to 75 to 100 different songs prior to the first album mm-hmm. that we released as wow. Lumineers. And there was a lot of time signatures and there was a lot of more complex stuff. And then Wes showed me this song called Flowers in Your Hair, which was our first song off the first album. It's track one and it starts off with a 4-4 kick drum and eventually comes in with a tambourine. That's it. It's very simple. And there was something about that. It was almost like I had to go to the maximum in my brain, almost had to like max out all this supposed skill and just see how complicated it could get for me to almost come around full circle and realize I just found myself very drawn to simple stuff. And how do you, I I think I can almost, I think it's like I, I stopped worrying about being a drummer and being a better musician. I think, I think a big part of why the drums in our songs are so simple is that I get so much out of, I get so much satisfaction out of helping with the music that Mm -hmm. when it comes to me adding drums, I'm just trying to serve the song. And I think that if I was just a drummer and had no input music on the creative musical side, I think that my ego would probably flare up and I'd say, I want to have drums. How can I add this ride cymbal? How can I add a China or a splash or, right, right. you know, how, how can I make noise just to get on the record? Sure. And, um, I think that's part of it is kind of that um, I just started looking at songwriting as, and some of the best songs don't even have drums, which may be a sacrilegious on this podcast. <laughs> but uh, No, I mean... You know, it's just, it's kind of an interesting thing. I think I really... I kind of maxed out my drumming brain with with listening to that stuff all the time. And, you know, some of those bands I mentioned, like some of the heavier stuff that's really complicated, it's kind of hard for me to listen to as I get older because it is so complex. And it's I think I'm just looking for something different. And I'm sure I'll come back around to it. You know, it's always our lives are always oscillating and kind of revolving doors to what we like and what we don't like. So I think I'm just currently I'm in this mindset where, yeah, the simpler drums that people know if they do know the Lumineers, uh, I think that's kind of why I'm doing it these days. Well, you know, there's, I think that the, the misconception is that, that it's not hard to do something simplistic and make it sound good, which I think it's a, I think it's equally as hard to play all the stuff that, that, you know, Mike Portnoy played on dream theater sure, and then play, you know, play two and four and make it groove its ass off. Like if you look at, um, like one of my favorite records is the the first Counting Crows record, the August and Everything After. So Steve mm. Steve Bowman plays drums on it, and sure. and he's it's like it's so simple. And I mean one of you know he has a fill and it's just bloom 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 bloom, and it's huge. I mean it's like this massive yeah. statement. But but you know at first listen, 
you know, he's not really playing that much. And then you start listening to it and you're like, oh my God, there's, there's all these, there's all this use of dynamics and there's, you know, at, he'll, he'll move to like, he'll open up the hi-hat just a little bit, you know, in the chorus and it sure. gives it momentum and all. Like, I think there's, there's, there's a lot more to that than, than what you hear, you know, at first, at first listen, you know? I, I, I mean, I really agree with that wholeheartedly. I've always said in interviews that, I think anybody can play a Lumineer song. I, I think I don't. I think it's difficult to write them though. I think you know, there's you know that guy John Cage, really avant-garde. Yeah, the guy. piano player. Yeah, and he has. Didn't that he have weird, the what's it 20, like, 21 minutes or twenty six minutes or something? Yeah, it's like the crowd is like, or there's he has a lot of different things. One in particular was like he a guy just shows up to a piano bench at a concert doesn't it doesn't play. Anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's the you know, and that's that's out there, but it's an extreme representation of. I think something profound, and I read I read an interview with him, and he said, "Don't don't interpret not playing as negative space. Try to interpret it as a positive void." And I took away from that: you are premeditatedly not doing something is just, if not more important than premeditatedly actively doing something. Mm -hmm. And one of the bands is the easiest to is like the benchmark is the Beatles. I mean, you listen to a song like I just heard um, "Come Together" on the radio yesterday, Mm -hmm. and that four to the floor on the verse is so heavy and good and then the chorus the very short chorus of come together right now over me it's just kick snare there's no hats there's no ride Mm -hmm. just kick snare and i'm just like i was just like ah every time i hear a song by them every like next 10 years i'm just like fuck it's so it's so like just potent it's all right there and there's a clip on YouTube somewhere. This just drummer. This drummer shows. Um, what's that song by the Beatles? It's something like "There Are Days That I Will Remember." Um, mm, there, there I'm so I'm, I'm horrible with with names of songs. Me too. But there's there's one classic, one of the many classic Beatles songs, and he's like, "This is what the drummer Ringo Starr did." Now let me show you what the song sounds like if I did a very complicated drum beat. And it's so weird. It's it just kind of like ruins the song because. Right. He does this really complex ride cymbal beat with a kick and snare and some tom fills, and you're just like, uh, that does sound just kind of weird. And it's, uh, I, I mean, I'm always thinking about that. I'm always obsessing about when is busy too busy. So um, did you come come into that mindset out of necessity, or did you start to lean that way? And if so, how did you start to develop that? Like, how did you start pulling notes out of your playing? That's hard, man. It's like, yeah, I think it was like, I think you know, I think about ten years ago when we were. It's probably 10 or 12 years ago, we started writing together, me and the singer, Wes. And, you know, every next generation of musicians is that much more kind of screwed, I would say. It's like we're all victims of circumstance. So if you want to do a palm mute delay guitar, you kind of can't because the edge from U2 has sort of copyrighted that. You know what I mean? It's like... (laughs) There's like, and then there, there's just like different types of, we're all victims of circumstance. There's so much music that's already been made that it's so, so I started thinking about that. I'm kind of like, well, I'm kind of screwed. It's going to be really hard to make something that stands out. And I think reinventing the wheel is almost impossible in this day and age. Like you'd have to come up with some crazy amalgam of like jazz and gospel and rap, or I don't know, I wouldn't even know how to reinvent the wheel. So I think I kind of acknowledge that, like, you know, it might be kind of impossible to, to do something unique, but how can you stand out as an artist? And I think we just realized, let's let's just try exercises. Let's try to write songs with two chords and no drums. Okay, let's try to write a song with just a kick drum. Let's try to write a song with... Um, and then, I don't know, I started... I, I listen to the radio a lot. I'm a pretty lazy, uh, 
listener in that regard. If I'm driving to Target or whatever, I listen to the radio and I do hear a lot of drum beats with hi-hats and these kind of, and I just think like, I, I, I mean, for me, I almost try to use the floor tom as a hi-hat in my plane. And I use a lot of floor tom because I've just heard so many songs with hi-hats that there's nothing wrong with that. It's just with our band, I think there is something wrong with that. It's sort of like, you know, it just it wouldn't work. It would change the dynamics of a song. And right. Our biggest song, the song Ho Hey, has just kick drum and tambourine. I think it has two crash cymbals in there somewhere, and it has a lot of overdubbed uh, kind of wall of sound uh, floor stomps, mm-hmm. just boots boots on hardwood floor. And I feel like if you played that song with a two-step kind of country um, flair, it would feel so generic. And I'm sure there's people out there that would tell me it's it's just generic. And, you know, unfortunately, in a weird way, it was such a popular song. It's kind of a hard song to talk about because it's a very it was such a popular song that it's kind of hard to get over that hump of being known. Uh, you never want to just be known for one song. But right. I, th- I still think I'm still proud of that song. I think from a percussive and drummer's perspective it's cool how little is happening there's really no beat but there is a there is something in there and right there's movement still yeah and i I don't know i think trying to just have that restraint it is it's so much easier said than done i think and i think that's why writing these songs is really difficult for us because um yeah what do you do with the drums and you know maybe we're, we're just starting to write the third album now and there's a couple of ideas where i'm like maybe i should just have some drum beats but the first two albums we have there's almost no drum you know i put in quotes drum beats there's really no there's very few songs where it's like oh the drums have dropped and they're in and on the same token i really respect bands that can do that you know we had the honor of opening up for tom petty and the heartbreakers um just before he passed away actually we played a show in hyde park in london and then i think one in vancouver and one in seattle and watching them it's really interesting because their songs have drums in from the top Almost yeah. all of them. I'm talking like bass, drums, some organ, rhythm guitar, lead guitar. And I'm just like, I don't know how they do that. Like, I don't know as an <laughs> artist, I don't know how to have drums in from the top and maintain some sort of interest. And I really respect bands that can do that. What do you mean by drums um, in from the top? Like, uh, let me think of a good example. I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, what's a big song where drums are in from the top? Like right from the get go, you're saying just like filling right into the song and just yeah, yeah, just like you know, even more from those older bands like Led Zeppelin or I'm trying to think of a good example. I guess essentially just having a song where the drums are in from verse one, top first measure, mm-hmm. and they just never really go out, but yet somehow you know who's a, you know who are masters of that were Sting and the Police. Yeah, um, a lot of their songs like Roxanne. Roxanne is probably one of the biggest songs um, as a reference point. Drums are in, I think, right from the top on that 16th note hi-hat. And they're just in the whole song, and they never go away. And But somehow they were really good at an instrumental at making a verse feel like a verse, and then the chorus feeling like that chorus. And I think right. for us, I just don't know how to do that. So I think it's probably also like it's a... I don't know how to have drums in from the top of a song. So you, know, so you need to like slowly build the yeah, drums we, in. <laughs> we joke when we were showing the second album to the other guys, they were kind of teasing us and being like, let me guess the drums don't come into like second verse after the chorus <laughs> or, Oh, they build. That's wow. That's so original. And we're like, all right, but you know, I think people should be like, Hey, F you man. This is how, this yeah. how it works. <laughs> have some sympathy. I mean, I really think that, yeah, like a layered approach is, is currently our, our mode of, um, of writing because quite frankly i don't know how to do it any other way and i've i've we've tried songs where the drums are in from the top and 
it's just if it doesn't feel like there's anywhere to go, that's a really um, the song can feel stale and stagnant for us. Right. And um, there's just a lot of bands that have uh, that have been able to pull that off, obviously. And uh, I really respect those bands. So, I it's interesting to me that the way that you approach the songwriting, as you're saying, like you're not approaching it as a drummer, so you're not looking at like, okay, we need drum beats in this song. It's like more of okay, let's build this sort of wall of sound, like you said, and put together this this thing that okay maybe okay it needs a floor tom here and it needs maybe a hi-hat here or it needs a kick drum here or something and you're sort of building this thing together and and writing it as one big piece of music and then it just so happens that when you guys play live you play the percussion parts live yeah and i i mean honestly drums are like the last thing that are ever added to a lumineer song because um for me it's sort of like when we write a song our band is never going to be known for a drum beat. So if I was Neil Peart in Rush, I would have to have like a lot of good drum ideas all the time. Obviously, if I'm Mike Portnoy in Dream Theater, you're like getting paid and hired to be the sicko maniac drummer. Thankfully, I'm not because I wouldn't even be able to do all that stuff. I can right. do some of it, but honestly, not all of it. And um, I think that, yeah, I think there's something about that where we we acknowledge that melodically and what we do in the piano and the guitar and then eventually drums, of course, but... Um, drums always get added last and i think that's um you know and i think that could change obviously you always want to evolve you never want to copy and paste you never want to rinse and repeat um and that's a that's a hard thing to kind of to wonder about you know do you copy and paste and do you satiate your fans and do something lazy or do you completely evolve and possibly satisfy yourself in a selfish need and alienate all your fan base and um you know those are the scary wonderful wonderful things i think about all the time (laughs) So it's it's tough, yeah. And I'm sure you can think about it from, you know, a, a fan perspective. Think about you growing up, you're listening to bands, and then they come out with a record that doesn't sound anything like, and you're like, oh, what the fuck? I, it doesn't sound yeah. anything like And then what happens, I mean, for me anyway, I don't know if this happens to you, after about six months of listening to the record, you're like, you know, I actually really love this record. It doesn't sound like anything they've ever done. But it still sounds like them, and it sounds great. Once in a while, it gets ruined by like some producer that comes in, and sure, you know, and that happens to me a lot with Radiohead. I will say, and they're 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 one of my favorite bands. They might be my all time favorite band. And it's but what's really cool about Radiohead is I'm very obsessed with them, and I really love their music. And I think that I could probably name off the top of my head like five to eight, if not more than ten songs that are. If somebody played just the drums, I would I would for sure 100 percent tell you that's a radiohead song um i don't know if you're really familiar with them but there's just a bunch am, of songs yeah, yeah. you know that song idiotech it's got mm-hmm. that really electronic beat so there's one i know high and dry has a drum beat that's really um there's a, there's a song called morning bell that's in a really weird time signature um there's just a bunch and i'm just like that's really cool and i think when i was younger especially a teenager on 17 to 21 if i saw a band doing something really well i used to get really nervous and think fuck why can't i do that What's wrong with me? And now as I get older, I just sort of am like, that's great. They have, they're doing that well. I don't need to do that, though. (laughs) Somebody is already fulfilling that gap in the musical world. Therefore, I don't need to be worried or or preoccupied. How can I do that? And I think that used to be a big fear I had. But I feel uh, better that that's sort of diminished in my head a little bit. You're coming into your own a bit. And plus, I I, I I would have... And I would imagine that it's a lot easier when you have more success behind you, too, of, of saying, OK, this is working. You know, the things I don't need to be everything to everyone sort of I'm just going to do what works for us and do it well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, who's a great example. Classic band Third Eye Blind. I really love them. And I just have been listening to their album a lot. 
Um, and then, you know, those, those big hits like semi charmed kind mm-hmm. of life and jump jumper and how's it going to be. Those are all songs where the drums are basically in from the top. And I'm just like, these are really nineties drum beats and they're awesome. Yeah. I would never put one of those in my songs right now, but that's okay. These songs are super cool and interesting. The production's fantastic, strong songwriting. And I think that's a good example of what I'm trying to get at. There were, there were a lot of those good bands in the nineties. Yeah. You know, like- Even live, they have this one song called Latkini's Juice. It's a really strange name, but it's such a heavy drum song. And it's just, I don't know if I know that tune. I loved live though. Man, it's a weird. I bet you do know it, but it's just a strange. I think it's called Lat L A T, like Lat Keeney's Juice. I think, and it's just such a sick uh, drum song and, and just a great song in general. Huh. I want to. I want to bounce around a little bit. I want to talk about your your time in New York. And so you guys are living that. So you moved from Ramsey. You go to. You lived in Brooklyn, right? What part of Brooklyn were you in? So Wes, the singer, lived in Brooklyn for about nine months. I think. I think he was in Williamsburg. So I was still in Ramsey. I was finishing up school at uh, William Patterson University okay. where um, that's kind of where I learned how to play piano. I was a sociology major there, but I um, I just uh, played piano all the time. They had these great practice rooms and I would actually schedule my classes so that I always had like a two hour break in the middle of the day. And um, I would, that's how I kind of learned how to play piano mm-hmm. of all things. So yeah, we were in, he was in Brooklyn, I was in Ramsey. And then when I graduated, we thought, well, we either move into the city, which is the, the biggest city closest to us, and or let's move somewhere else. And we decided to move to Denver because we just thought it'd be cheaper, it'd be less distraction. Uh, what's the point of living in New York City if you have to work three jobs? Right. I was going to say there was there was a bit of sort of frustration, right? Was it? Yeah. Was the frustration with the music business or was the frustration just with it's so goddamn expensive to live in New York City? I think both. I think there was not really a scene. I think it's kind of this illusion that there's a, I think there probably is a scene in Brooklyn. I, I don't know. I assume there is obviously because it's such a potent uh, city, but it was just weird. Like Wes in particular, he told me he went to an open mic in New York City and it was like a seven hour wait list. And they, they clearly just bait all these artists. You have to keep drinking the whole night. And I think his time slot to play like one song was like 3.25 a.m. And you're just like, all right, I'm not yeah, going to wait. This is stupid. Hammered to play one song at 3.30 in the morning. And it was so expensive, obviously, to live there. I think anybody that lives there that's not successful must be getting help from their parents. And I, I just don't think that's a very cool thing. Um, you know, you want to be in the city, you want to have a cool loft apartment, but you got to work your ass off. And then when would you have time for music? Right. The answer is ne- the answer's never. So we thought, let's go to Denver. Let's go to the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and, uh, and coincidentally, um, now I, I feel like Denver's booming. Like, I mean, the, the music booming. scene. It's really crazy. Yeah. Like the population is said to double and there's lots more traffic and it's a palpable difference. A hundred percent that yeah. people are moving here. So who knows? But uh, yeah, you can feel it for sure. Yeah. So you guys, you move out there and what's what's the thought process? Like we're going to do the same thing sort of that we were doing in New York, but we're just going to do it in a place that's a little bit cheaper. It's, you know, yeah, because there, I mean, there, was, there, there wasn't much of a music scene there, right? In Denver or yeah. New York? No, in Denver. No. So when we got to Denver, there was a great music scene and that's that's what was different. So the open mic scene, we went to this place called the Meadow, the Meadow Lark in Denver and we found it on Google. We typed in open mic in Denver and I think it was free and it was something like $2, $2 shots and $1 PBR. And we were like, all right. You're like good. sold. <laughs> sold. Let's, let's go. Um, and we went there and there was just so many different types of music. I mean, there was jazz. There was a, a hip hop guy. There was 
um, folk and singer songwriter and kind of pop and kind of rock and heavy rock and avant-garde sort of prog rock and all types of stuff. And there was this guy named Tyler uh, Dupre who was the host. And he also was in this great band called Science Partner. And for me, it was really like church without religion. It was like, no matter how crappy your day was or your week was for that matter, because I was a busboy at the sushi restaurant. They treated me well, but it just, you know, it's not a great job. You're a busboy cleaning people's soy sauce and tables. I grew up in the restaurant business, man. I get it. (laughs) Yeah. So I was a bar back and my back hurt from bringing up all those bottles of sake and ice and beer and stuff. You know, I just like, you know, you're just having a job that hoping for something to break in your musical career. And, but was that, was that the thing? Like, was that the thought? This is such a stupid question, but like, were you thinking, were you like, man, we're, we're like, we're here, we're trying to make it like as dumb as that sounds, were you like, we're like, we, we, like, we want to be fucking rock stars. Like that's what we're trying to do. No, I think it was, I think it was simpler than that. I think it's sort of like, we, you know, to, to steal this great line from a uh, Heath Ledger in the Batman movie. He says, he says something like, I'm like a dog chasing a cop car. When I catch it, I don't even know what I want to do with it. Right. I feel like very akin to that. Like I felt like we were dogs chasing the scent of something, but we had no idea what that meant. Um, and I can honestly say it certainly wasn't money or getting on the radio. I think for me, it was just like, for me, the biggest high being a musician has always been when we show each other a new song idea or we have something kind of working that's still fresh on the computer and somebody hits spacebar and you and you get to listen to this idea and you're the only person in the universe that's ever listened to that particular idea. For me, that's the coolest part where you're like, at some point, the band Queen hit play on Bohemian Rhapsody and there was like five or six dudes that had heard that song or yeah. at some point, Zeppelin heard stairway to heaven like just them and maybe their producer and the world had no idea what was coming for me i think that's like the coolest ideology and mindset is like wow we're gonna have something new and and then we started to think okay we thought we we felt like we had some very strong material that we were proud of which was really it's a great feeling when you feel like you don't care if you get complimented or obviously criticized you just feel like it's good no matter what people say Mm -hmm. and um yeah we thought how can we tour how can we quit these jobs that are clearly um, placeholders? Mm-hmm. And how, do, how can you become? How can we just continue to do this? It wasn't like how can we get in the iTunes chart or how can we get on the top forty radio or right. whatever. It was just. Um, it's basically how steps. can we do that? Yeah. How can we do this maybe full time and not have to work a day gig? Yeah, and let's see where this goes. Like we're just we're we're, we're obsessed. We're driven. We have this East Coast driven mentality of that was instilled to us. But I think it was important and felt healthier than. Because growing up in the East Coast, particularly in New Jersey, there's, there is a very strong go to high school, get the good grades, get college credits, go to college, yep. get that sick job and make lots of money. And I think that's like a, just a very kind of sad way to, to view life uh, for me anyway. And I think we sort of applied that drivenness to the band and thought, yeah, I mean, it's just funny. You know, we never I think that I really hope that I, this is true, but I think I act the same way as I did 12 years ago, like 12 years ago when we would be writing songs and working on stuff, I'd be in my sweatpants, you know, we'd be having the amp out, we'd be writing down the settings or I'd be Googling how to get the best, uh, you know, X, Y recording of overheads for the drums. I'd be mm-hmm. Googling about all this stuff. And we took it so seriously and nobody gave a shit back then. Like nobody cared what we were doing in our demos of these crappy songs that we were writing, but we took it so seriously. And I kind of love that, that we were like, you know, we were, I looked up to people like Rick Rubin. Yeah. Um, 
thinking about the types of conversations he had with the Chili Peppers, um, how he took them from a really good band to just like, you know, selling 30 million plus albums of Californication to like just all that type of stuff. I'm just really fascinated with the craft and more behind the curtain, behind the scenes stuff that mm-hmm. um, all of pop culture, everything that influences us. Once you see it on, once you see a show on Netflix or once you hear an MP3, that's just the end result. I'm not really, I don't really care so much about the end result. I'm so much more preoccupied with what people are talking about this. People are getting coffee and talking about these ideas and working very hard on them. And I think that's what I really love about uh, being a musician. It's, you know, I think touring is a necessity. I think, um, do you like touring? I do sometimes it's, it's very, I think I get pretty exhausted by it. I, Mm -hmm. I find it not always easy. Um, I don't you guys want, are playing like what you guys are playing big venues now. I mean, what what size venues? Yeah, we were we were very. I mean, we've been very fortunate. We just did two nights at uh, the Garden in New York City. That was in I think March of uh, of this year. That was just like That's a dream insane. come true. I mean, right. growing up in Jersey, of course, of course, walking into the Garden and man, what does yeah, that feel like? What is that like? Yeah. I think I don't think I've still actually acknowledged it. I think it's still like this numb sort of shock thing where I'm like, I guess we did that. Um, I guess that happened. It's it's kind of too big to to acknowledge. I think. Yeah. Um, hey Nick, I hate to do this. Is it okay if we wrap up in five minutes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can always. I love talking to you, so I can always do. I'd be down to do another session, or if you want to add anything on. Um, okay. I'm totally down. So okay, you just cool. let me know. Cool. Uh, do you want to? Um, do you want to like? Do you want to pick up? or do you want to like we'll just stitch it together like we can reschedule and we'll do like a part two or something like that yeah that might be good because for me i should have asked you uh ahead of time typically i do when we do interviews they last about 15 to 20 minutes but this is this is a lot cooler than a normal interview so <laughs> well that's good thank I, you I, these discussions are pretty rare too people usually have an agenda they try to get these sound bites or something and that is know, that's not what i that's not what this thing is about at all it's, it's typically interviews obviously are also typically promoting a thing and a, a specific event that's coming up and there's questions why are you doing it what's it for and then okay see ya and this is this is more reflective this is a cool time especially since we're going back into um, the third album of writing is sort of I've been thinking about all the things I'm telling you I've been kind of bouncing around my head about you know having restraint on the drum set mm-hmm. or why do we tour? Oh, this is all these questions. So this is good. Good time to do it. It's interesting perspective too. Uh, one from the production standpoint. One you know from writing writing tunes as a as a drummer as a percussionist. Not putting that stuff. Not letting the ego get in the way and saying no. I just want my drums to be up front. Um, but also you know that there's so many people who listen to this podcast who are busboys at sushi places. You know and like right. are trying to figure out like. Can I make this work? You know, how, how, how can I do this full time? How can, you know, how can I maybe change my approach? What's some of the thought processes behind it? And I think that's, I think that's, that's huge, man, because I know that, you know, like I, not to your level, but I've taken a band and I grew it in 15 years. We grew it from nothing to, you know, playing big clubs and tour buses. And I know like the frustration of not having that and being like, I'm <laughs> yeah. never going to be able to do this full time and all that. So I, I just think it's an interesting oh, perspective. Man, it's such a, it's such a frustrating thing. And I think also in New York city, we had no idea, like you'd ask people, how do you tour? And I think it was sort of this thing where people had become successful and then they come back to the New York city. And then it's sort of this false truth that people think you make it in New York city. I don't really think anybody makes it in New York city. I think you make it elsewhere. And then it's like this glorious return that maybe you play the Bowery ballroom or Irving Plaza or maybe right. the garden, whatever it might be, but you have to bust your ass 
kind of everywhere else. Yeah. And um, when we moved to Denver, yeah, even asking the simple question, how do you tour? That was terrifying. I was like, how am I going to ask off for time for my for my busboard gig? Right. Are they going to take Are they going to take me back? Um, and then you know we'd have these questions, we'd have these conversations where it'd be like, well, you're never going to hear like the Chili Peppers almost were famous, but then Flea had his Domino's delivery pizza guy shift, so they couldn't go on tour and they didn't make it. You're like, that would that's not in the history books. The history books always say, yeah, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. Yeah, and I've heard, I've even heard from like Dave Grohl. He talked about salad in a bag where they'd go on like with the Nirvana days and possibly still the early Foo Fighter days, but probably more Nirvana. They'd go into a supermarket, you'd buy a head of iceberg lettuce, chop it up, throw in a Ziploc bag, put a bunch of like dressing, shake it up, and that was your lunch. And I'm right. like, man, that's like super gross. <laughs> super, uh, <laughs> that's super rough in it. And here, you know, I think also it's def- it's difficult because people see him as the he was a drummer for Nirvana and he's the singer of Foo Fighters. It must have been so easy. But people forget so easily, like, at one point, he was an unknown drummer in a band called Nirvana. Broke. Eating, and, yeah. eating iceberg out of a Ziploc bag at, like, a Pathmark or a ShopRite or whatever it was. And I think people just, they forget that too easily, unfortunately. And they think, well, you're on the radio. It must be easy. It's like, yeah, but it took me it took us 10 years to get in the radio. It wasn't like, yo, check out this email. And then, okay, you guys made it. Oh, yeah, come on up. Yeah, here's some radio yeah. play. <laughs> of course. Here, come in to our house. Yeah. Enjoy all the spoils. Right. No, it doesn't work like that. So, all right. Well, yeah, I, we could just, we'll pick up for tomorrow because I think that, I mean, a lot of this is, is super interesting, especially like, you know, the touring and, you know, getting management and a label and, and yeah, like sure. that's there, you know, we don't have to get too deep into it, but I think that's a, it's a good, it's a good message for people listening to say like, okay, it's not going to happen overnight. You know, like you yeah, said, it takes, sure. it takes 10 years to, to, you know, to have overnight success. To become, yeah. 10 years to be an overnight success. That's, right. That's the, uh, that's a truism though. I really firmly believe that. I think, I think if you, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I'm with you. You're listening to this podcast 100% free, and that's because the good folks at MI, Musicians Institute, right there in the heart of Hollywood, California. And if you need to take your playing to the next level, or your playing has hit a ceiling, then look no further than to MI to get out of that rut and get to the next level. There's all sorts of courses like gospel drumming and cajon classes and production and music industry and anything that you can possibly think of that you need to get to the next level. Musicians Institute can help you get there. You can learn more about them, their program, their faculty, and any course that you may want to take by going to mi.edu. You may sit at the back of the stage, but everyone knows the band revolves around you. You set the tempo, the intensity, and most importantly, the tone. And the easiest way to set that tone is to play Evan's drumheads with Level 360 technology. Trusted by industry-leading drummers like Chris Coleman, Anika Niles, Evan's Drumheads offer the most consistent fit for every drum and max tunability all around. Plus, they take you beyond the normal tuning range for higher highs and lower lows. Now, the sound that you want will always be the sound that you get. You can learn more about Evan's and their Level 360 technology by going to evansdrumheads.com. Now, let's get back into it with Jeremiah Freights. You were talking about you were a busboy at this at this restaurant, 
and uh you guys had just started writing tunes and but what was the so what was the transition there like how did you guys you know start to start to put the the foundation down of like really putting this thing together yeah it's, it's a good question i mean i think that with music or any sort of vocation you have this like limitless sometimes inspiration but you don't know where to put all that ambition you feel like you want to you want it to go to the next level but you have no clue how to and i think for us we had no idea i mean literally no idea like we were writing music and we knew we wanted to go to the next step but we had no idea how that worked so the first the first piece of the puzzle outside of the band was actually the lawyer we met this lawyer i think through the singer's uh, neighbor something in new jersey and I think he heard like a five or seven song EP that we had mm -hmm. and he just kind of believed in it. And it was this pretty, very simple. He sort of proposed a deal. He was like, what, what do you guys say to this? If you guys sell out, I don't know, 200 people at like the Mercury Lounge in New York City, I'm not going to ask for any money. And then if you guys sell out like Radio City Music Hall, I'll come and ask for like my 5% or whatever it was. And we were like, all right, sounds like a deal. <laughs> um, so we met with, the, and that's the same lawyer we have. His name is Richard Grable. He's amazing. And once we had the lawyer, um, we started to, I think we started to make waves. Th this is where like, you know, hard work and then like just random kind of good luck or fortune or whatever you want to call it collided for us. We had this video of Ho Hey, we performed at a house show in Denver and somehow somebody in Seattle had seen it. And that's where our, our current ma management company is called. Uh, onto entertainment mm -hmm. and they they flew out we were doing a residency in new york city at this place called the living room which i think is gone now but yeah, um, i think it's closed every tuesday or thursday for the whole month of i don't know march probably seven years ago we played and uh Kristen green our manager came out and saw us and said like hey we really want to work with you and i was very weary of it at the time because you know there's this business is riddled with bad deals or people that maybe they see potential success in your project and then they take advantage of that. So right. again, it was like the lawyer that we trusted vetted the management company. And then we had, now we have, so now we have a lawyer in management. And so and the lawyer were, wasn't really acting as a manager. No, he was no. just literally like the, the firewall you could say between right. <laughs> us and the outside world. Right. And it was, it was kind of like that piece by piece. I mean, we had, so now we have the lawyer, who lives and works in New York City. And then we had management in Seattle, Washington. And then we started touring, um, which was a handful of us still booking our own shows, like house shows and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then eventually we played a show in um, San Francisco to like maybe 60 people. And this guy, Joe Tamian, who is our current booking agent for the United States and Australia, he works for a company called Paradigm. Uh, Paradigm. He was in the crowd. Well, that's a big agency. And, yeah, now yeah, they're awesome, and they work with tons of bands. And so then we had our booking agent Joe, who's based out of uh, now Nashville, Tennessee. And then I think the biggest, like the next biggest piece of the puzzle, was uh, signing with the record label. And there was a few that we really wanted to work with. Um, and then there was actually a lot. I think almost every record label went to one of our shows. Um, a lot of them. They were looking to work with us and we, we were pretty scared of working with a major label that didn't appeal to us because it seems like uh, very little yield or benefit for what you have to give up. Right. So um, this very small record label called Dual Tone based out of Nashville, Tennessee, at the time had five people and that's our current record label. And now I think they've doubled to maybe 12 people or something. But 
um, you know, we were a small band that was willing to work hard mm-hmm. and they were, they were a small record label that was really willing to work hard with us. So it was like a match made in heaven and we still did nice. with them. And it, it was great, you know, cause I think, I think artists should be weary of that. Um, if you are a young up and coming band or solo artist and you want to work with somebody um, and you get the feeling that maybe they're in their fifties or sixties and that they don't really intend to work that hard for you, you know, work with somebody smaller or less, less um, widely known, but they'll mm-hmm. work harder. So, I mean, it's, it's very hard to get, you know, a company is only as good as the people that work there. So even if you work for a company that's supposedly amazing on paper, it's literally comes down to the men and women that are making the phone calls or not making the phone calls for that matter on your right. behalf. And, right. Um, I mean, it's tough. Like all that, just explaining that to you, it's, it's all that happened. There was a lot of conversations, a lot of, uh, should we do this? Should we do that? But right. It, it was kind of piece by piece. We never looked for the the quick let's sign and you know explode. Right. Even though even though it probably came across like that in a way to people because Hohe just took off. But there was so much that went in behind the scenes. I guess that I'm, that I'm trying to explain. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's easy from the outside to look and just say, oh, these guys. I'm sure just signed a record deal and they got all this stuff and you know they got they got put on the radio and and you know they just they they sort of got plucked out of the out of this thing and and became who they are but there's you know that i'm sure that this whole process of of even just going through management and the record label and all that i'm sure it you know it took what a couple of years i think so and it was i was always a person like when we actually signed with our management um i felt like sad or depressed like, i was just like i've always been so weary of success or so weary of something like i feel like I, if i let my guard down something bad will happen so i just always was like that's good but maybe maybe it's not, and then it's been great. But it's uh, when you take those first baby steps, it's your baby, it's your project, and then other people are having their hands in it. Right. It's uh, it's gonna go one or two ways. It's gonna go great, or it's gonna totally backfire. And um, I think what was cool though is piece by piece, we just we'd meet with the people, we'd have their cell phone numbers, you could call them, uh, and they just believed in the project before it was successful. I think right. that's what's important. You know, it's like it's believing in it before anyone um, else does. Yeah, you're not like, yo, I have this startup company called Uber. If you give me $100,000, I'll give you like six dividends back. Or You know, it's not right, something right. like that. It's like this very um, – I think that's important for musicians to realize is try to love your – like have, have realistic expectations too. Don't try to – if you try to be famous, if you try to be rich, I bet you'll fail beautifully at both. Yeah. If you try to, fo- if you try to follow something that you believe in and that you can see and like visualize – Maybe fame, maybe money will be a byproduct, but do, I mean, I don't want to preach, but just go for something different other than the superficial stuff. Because if you get that, maybe you'll be happy. I doubt you will be. And if you don't get that, you'll definitely be miserable. So <laughs> yeah, tough, I mean, uh, I think tightrope to walk. I think with the, with the, you know, with all of the, uh, the hard work and and the love and the passion behind it, you know, you become successful and sure, like the money may come, you know, and, and, but it's not, if if that's your goal, I agree that you're, I think you're going to get, get there and be like, okay, well, I got all this money, but I'm not really happy. And I didn't really do anything I wanted to do. No, for sure. When you said that you were, you were leery of the, the success was in terms of what it would do to the band or what it would do to you. You know, I don't even have a, I don't even have a good answer for that. I think, I probably relate myself to a little bit of like George Costanza, the character in Seinfeld or something like just, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. It's just, why is that? I think in, in just in terms of, you know, I don't want to have a therapy session, but in terms of success and music and stuff, it's sort of like, I think if I say, okay, now we have management, I guess I'm worried about, 
I, I, I kind of believe in the idea that the day you say we got this or this is going to be easy or I think the day that you say I'm a good musician, I'm a great musician is probably the day that you start you stop to to work as hard as what got you there. Mm. So I thought I, you would I lose some of that hunger. I think so. I think I'm just, yeah, I think I felt weary of that. Like, okay, now we have all the superficial stuff in place. This is the lifestyle. Now it's easier. We don't have to work that hard anymore. And then that's when you see bands start to wane in their success because they're like, ironically, the very hard work and all the ethics that got them to that, to that look, to that destination, um, sometimes just go out the window because they think, okay, well, now we don't have to work side jobs and everything's come a little bit easier. And right. I don't have a specific answer, but I think it was just a general weariness of will I stop to be, yeah, will I lose that hunger, I guess. Right. That makes sense. I mean, they, you know, they say when guys sign into the NBA or, you know, get get a get a record deal or whatever, they're like, you know, that's not that's not when the work stops. That's when the work starts. Yeah. yeah and it's sometimes, like, it's, yeah, like you said, it's the opposite where people are like, sweet, I got $40 million to work in this basketball team. And then they're like, why, yeah, what's the point of even training at that point? You have so much money that- right. I can't imagine what that would feel like to your psychological, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, it's not a healthy amount of money for anybody to have probably. Right. Right. And I wonder, I mean, is it, does it, does it feel different now? Like I'm, it has to, like you're going to San Francisco playing in front of 20 or playing in front of 60 people. And then, you know, last month or last year you played at the garden, you know, like, I mean, how does that, like what I mean for your for your psyche, I mean that's gotta be crazy. Like, holy shit, how the hell did we get here? For sure. I mean, I think is I always think about like what is the there's gotta be a fine line between it's like all this stuff I think about, it's like there's gotta be a fine line between confidence, pride, and being a dick about it all. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? And I think before you ever play a place like Madison Square Garden, I think that you have to believe, yes, that will happen. You have to be crazy enough and stupid enough to think it's going to work out to that proportion. I really think that you have to believe, because if you ask anybody, hey, should I do this? Everybody would be like, I don't know, man, that doesn't sound like a good idea. You're going to get in a van and drive, you know, 12 hours every day to play the people that don't, that have never heard your music. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to do that for like two years. What right. do you think? So. Oh, and I'm weird. not going to make any money. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to go ass backwards and debt. Um, I think it's, it's tough though. When you play that 60 person room and then if you, it's just, it's a funny thing too, about if you're proud of your band before you're successful, that's cool. But then it's like, if you're proud of your band, when you're successful, you're like maybe a narcissist or an egotistical maniac or something. So it's just funny thing where when when we played the garden, I still, I still think there's a part of me that is in shock where you had hoped that you would get there. But once you get there, you're not like, Oh, I knew it for sure. But there is a part of you that remembers, well, I, I hope for this. I mean, I, I did, yeah. yeah, like, you know, kind of not so much fake it till you make it, but more, I guess, be crazy and a little stupid enough to, <laughs> to think that it's something can give because any job out there, literally someone is doing it. So why can't it be you? Like I had a buddy of mine yep. who lives in Los Angeles and he got one of his tracks to a, a famous producer. And I was kind of like, that's awesome, man. But literally somebody is going to email that guy a track probably every day. Why can't that somebody be you? Like yeah. people have jobs. Someone's turning the knobs in, you know, a Rick Rubin session or somebody's flying that spaceship to outer space. Like, you know, I don't know. I'm yeah. kind of dive. No, no, no. I, I, no, I, I agree. I think that I, and I say it all the time. It's like, somebody's got to do it. You know, like a, a, my buddy James is the drummer for Conan O'Brien, right? There's. Cool. I'm like, you have, there's four other people who have your job, you know? Right. It's like, yeah. but somebody's got to have those jobs. So no, and, it's true. You know, like, it was like, you got it. going to sit down and yeah. 
do that job. Right. It's amazing. Um, there's, there was something that we, that we talked about that, that we kind of skipped over that I want to go back to. So if you guys are, you guys were in Denver and you were playing a residency in New York or you were playing in San Francisco, what was the, what was the, uh, the strategy to even get people in the door there? If you got, cause at that point you guys were like, weren't on the radio or anything, right? Yeah, correct. So with, with New York city, it was really crazy because we were living in Denver and then, um, we actually, I remember a very pivotal, what happened? We, we moved back. The timeline is difficult to remember. I remember at one point when we had the residency in, the, in New York City, um, me and Wes actually moved back to live with our parents in New Jersey, uh, in Ramsey, New Jersey, where we grew up. And I got a job as a bar back and busboy back in Ramsey at this bar, like basically right next to my house in New Jersey. And we lived there for free, tried to make as much money as we could. And then we also recorded as much as we could on this EP, this little seven song EP that we had just called The Lumineers had some songs from the first album on it. And um, with the residency, it was really cool because the first night there was 25 people. The second time was 50. It just got bigger and bigger. And then the last show that month was sold out, but that makes you feel really good, but that doesn't actually go anywhere um, necessarily. You know, it's like, Oh, there's this buzz. There's this band um, from, and it it was funny too, because when we lived in New York city, no, when we, sorry, when we moved to Denver, we were kind of known as the band from like New York city And I Mm -hmm. think there was this sort of like mystique about that. And then when we were playing in New York City at the residency, we were this band from Denver, Colorado. And people (laughs) were like, whoa, that's that's really far from here. That's so cool. So whatever people thought was cooler, where we were from, that's what we went with. Yeah, we are from Denver, you know. So and then whatever. (laughs) As far as as far as touring, touring was super, super difficult because if you booked a show, say you booked a show going up the coast of say like LA, San Fran, uh, there's a there's a Thai restaurant in Davis, California, way north that we played at. And then we'd go to Oregon, we'd go to Seattle, then we'd go to like Boise, Idaho, and then maybe we'd go down to and then maybe from Boise we'd drive like eighteen hours straight to Chicago and skip a bunch of states. Right. Um and maybe you have a gig booked and when you show up, it was like a terrible deal because there would be a probably a mandatory door charge. And why would you pay money to see a band you never heard of? And then anybody that did take a risk on you would probably you'd see maybe half of that or whatever the deal was. Right. So actually, our our, our piano player, his name is Stealth. He's a native from Colorado. And we started asking him if he had any tips. And he was great because when we moved out to Denver, um, Wes, the singer, had on MySpace that MySpace was very prominent about eight years ago whenever we moved out. and. Mm-hmm. Out of all, he must have messaged like a hundred people and Stealth was the only guy to respond and thought we sounded like a cool band. And he gave us a lot of tips that when you're an up and coming band, he would say, try to do a house show. And that's hard to, to come by. If you don't know somebody or know somebody that, that, that knows somebody, um, there's no website. There's no Craigslist for house shows. You just have to know somebody. And it was sort of like if your gig was on Wednesday in San Francisco, try to do a house show Monday or Tuesday create some sort of buzz there. Then maybe people would bring their friends out to the show. And right, that, was right, sort right. Of, that went That's on smart. for a while. And then, I mean, the real linchpin though was once Ho Hey got into the radio, it spread like wildfire. And the first thing that it had never happened to us before was that shows began selling out before we got to the city. So we started in probably typically in Los Angeles and then we'd go up the coast, like I described, and then the shows started to sell out before we got there at these 150 to 200 capacity rooms. And in a way, that was probably, sounds stupid, but that was probably crazier and cooler than playing the garden 
Explain yeah. the garden was so big, it's hard to wrap your head around. But going from nothing to seeing actual momentum and change, uh, that was probably in a way like exponentially bigger and faster growth mm-hmm. than going to the garden, if that makes sense. And yeah, yeah, it's just crazy, man. Like, there's so many. I have a lot of musicians ask me too, like, do you reckon, what are your recommendations about touring or production and all this other stuff? And I, I never know what to say. I mean, my, the only thing I really repeat is just say, work on your songs, makes your songs so good that it just, that's just, you got to make, just, just write songs and just work on the songs so much. And if you're just a drummer, that still applies to like, just work on your drum beats and Make sure you're serving the song, and if you are in a prog band, then throw that out the window and just go nuts and <laughs> hone your <laughs> skills. But it's it, there's no it's really hard to tell people sometimes because I think they ask, but they also probably I think they also know the answer. They just don't want to accept it that there is not you can't just like win the lottery and then you're this band. You know you have to right. do a lot of hard work. That's really uh, not glamorous for sure. Yeah, I mean I think that you you hit the nail on the head where people get the advice and you're like, all right, well, here's what you got to do. You got to get in a van. You got to drive around for a couple years and tour. You got to write good songs. You got to not make any money. You got to sacrifice it. And they're like, well, I don't want to do all that. How do, how can I do it without yeah. doing all that? And it's like, you can't, you can't do it that way. You know, I mean, yeah. I And I think even, even like the whatever, like, you know, sort of like the Mickey Mouse pop person that's plucked out of, you know, something they still, even, even, after that happens, they still put in a ton of work. There's no... No, I think so. I think that even people like, whether it's Bieber, Selena Gomez, Britney Spears, almost like these people that don't really seem like real people, I'm sure they are, they've worked their asses off and I'm sure that they're just in such a toxic environment, hence why they always make tabloids or they go crazy in quotes. It's like the amount of pressure and work that's expected out of those people is is, un, is inhumane. It's right. like... You know, they've been working since a young age, and I'm sure it's a toxic environment for those people that are so famous because it seems like they have this glamorous life, but what's expected of them is just really, I think, inhumane and very probably a very toxic conditions of no rest and constant, um, we need this from you, we need that from you. Yeah. I, I mean, and I, could, I wouldn't be able to handle not literally not being able to go anywhere in public, ever. Right. Yeah. No, you that know? would be a real trip for sure i mean like how often do you get recognized it depends i mean every now and then and people are really nice so we're we're really blessed in that regard everybody's really nice so if we travel as a band we get recognized all the time because we just look like a band musicians (laughs) you know when they're walking through the airport they just musicians always just look like musicians right for some reason um but yeah good amount we get recognized i guess but it's not um not to the point where like you can't go to you know costco and without getting mobbed yeah right i was in costco i was in costco just the other day and no mob Right. No <laughs> uh, that's good. I mean, I I think that I, you know, a buddy of mine uh, was in the Bloodhound Gang and they had like, you know, the number one song in the country and all this stuff. And he but he can still go to the grocery store and not, you know, not get bothered. I, you know, that's a that's a no, rough, that's kind of the, that's kind of the best of both worlds. Exactly. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you quick and I want to be cognizant of your time. Um, but I, I, I remember seeing you guys on Creative Live, which I thought was like a really cool thing that you guys did. You guys did like this little show in this intimate setting. Uh, and I don't know if it was in their San Fran office or in Seattle. I don't remember which one. Yeah, doing the Creative Live with Chase Jarvis, that was the day the record came out. I think it was April 4th, 2011, something like that. 
Mm-hmm. And that was one of the busiest days ever. We started out at, um, it was this record, record station called KEXP that was playing Ho Hey back to back before any other station was doing it. They were truly the first. He had this huge stack of CDs and this radio DJ named, um, I'll remember, he started playing us back to back. And then, uh, yeah, then we did the Chase Jarvis thing. Sorry, what was your question? <laughs> well, I was just wondering was that was that part of the was that part of the promo tour, or was that just something that you guys lined up like? Because I mean, I I don't think it's it's not a normal thing. Like he doesn't normally have bands on there to play shows. Uh, you know, like every well, great once in a while he will. But I just thought it was a, a cool um, thing. No, it's cool. We uh, our management. Uh, so we have two managers, Dave and Chris, Dave Miner and Kristen Green. They're both uh, in Seattle, Washington. And so is Chase. So I think our manager, Dave, really knows a lot of people in the area. And I think like a good manager, he really wanted to make sure when our album came out that there was some sort of, you know, splash and impact. Because especially in, in this day and age, to, to get a new album listened to by anybody, is, it's really difficult. There's thousands of bands and there's thousands of uh, momentum for other bands. So right. I think that was just part of the can we do this? And he was into it. And that guy was, he was really nice, Chase Jarvis. And we've seen him uh, sporadically since. I think he's come to a show or two since that. And yeah, that was a cool thing to to be able to play and kind of talk about the songs a little bit. And that was cool. Yeah. yeah. I just thought it was something, you know, something a little bit different. I thought it was a kind of cool. And he's like, I mean, he's a really well-known photographer. He's like a world-class photographer and he's done like, and yeah. director and all kinds of stuff. So no, we got really blessed. To, and that's another thing too, is sort of like, just um, you know, you, you meet all these people, and it's just, you know, you know what it is. It's if you never leave your job, or if you never take the risk to to put yourself in San Francisco or to put yourself in Seattle. It's like if we had never been to Seattle, we never would have done that show. But since we were already going there, he's like, yeah, I'll do that. You know, so once you put yourself, you, you know that movie uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade with mm-hmm. Sean Connery. Yeah, yeah. he's, he's got to throw that like sick dust. Yeah. to the bridge and he doesn't know it's there but he just has to trust that's how i kind of think of it it's like you have to just trust that something will work out once you put yourself in a position where you're willing to travel and do what musicians do then cool random things like that um are so much more likely to fall into your lap i think for sure yeah i i agree it's like you said if you're not you're not putting yourself out there you're not doing anything then nothing is going to happen so yeah for sure um let's i want to talk about quickly about uh the tour that you guys are on now i mean you guys so you guys just came out with a record in what in april so are you working on the next record i hate to be the guy that's like okay what's next because <laughs> you know because no, okay. i i think that's natural you know you're like well i just put this thing out and it's like all right well what's next and it's like well that thing is still that thing's still there and it's still good. So, you know, well, I was, for us it's, no, for us, it's nice. Cause, uh, the album came out, it was last April. So we just finished about an 18 month tour. We have 10 more shows, uh, coming up this at the end of November, early December, we have 10 shows in the United States. Um, and then we're done for a while, uh, to write the third album. But for us, it was nice because the first album, a tour cycle for a band could last between 18 months to two years. Uh, the first album lasted about three and a half years. So about wow. double, um, which was really crazy. And it was a lot of good stuff happened. A lot of crazy stuff happened. And uh, this one, it's just kind of maybe it was 18 months. There was a lot more breaks and more rest. So, yeah, me and the singer, actually, we were in the studio uh, yesterday working on a new song for the third album and kind of, you know, trying to start slow. You don't want to just start sprinting and lose all your steam but it's it's uh 
yeah, we so I guess we've started kind of <laughs> the third album, which is kind of a, a crazy uh, thing to be starting, but it feels like the right time. It feels like I feel lucky that this, this tour didn't last as long as the first one did. That's for sure. Right. And I think I'm guessing I don't want to, you know, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm guessing you have you guys have a little bit more freedom in terms of time now. Right. So you don't have to I don't you're not as under the gun to like to get the record done in a certain amount of time. Or I think you you have a little bit yeah. more freedom. Right. Yeah, we actually and we did with the second one, that, which was which was great. So I think we'll have the same for the third. And I really think that even our record labels, um, our management, anybody that works with this with us. I think would agree. Um, I think anybody that's not in the band would love an album probably like in April coming up, you know, that's sealed, packaged and ready to be released. But I think it's really important that if we have another four year gap, like we did between album one and two, and it's, in my opinion, a great album to me, that's better than just getting something out in like six months. That's crap. And then we got a tour on it for 18 months and then the, maybe we don't sell, maybe we don't sell any CDs and people are like, oh, they, they were kind of cool. Those first two albums, but not great now. So I think for me, I really do believe that it's so much better to make sure it's something that's ready and that you feel really great about it. And if mm-hmm. that takes longer, that's better than just, you know, getting right. something out. Is the pressure higher on this album? No, it's a lot for me. It's a lot less. The second album was just really immense pressure because yeah. You know, the first album, it was with a song like Ho Hey on the first album. And then also we got nominated for two Grammys. We lost both of them, which is OK. We played on the Grammys, which was insane exposure. We toured on every continent except for Antarctica. I mean, we went all over the world. Like wow. Japan, China, New Zealand, Australia, most of Europe. We did South Africa, most of Canada, all of the United States. I mean, just everywhere. Literally, if there was a city in the world, we were probably there Everywhere except Russia and uh, Antarctica. Right. <laughs> and um, yeah, that that to me was just a really crazy pressure that and I didn't feel it externally. It just was an internal thing. Like, how can you um, how can you feel like you can match that? Or how can you feel like you're giving the fans a new album that feels it's not too different, but also not the same, obviously. Right. Um, then the, you don't want to copy and paste the first album. So for, for me, that felt a lot harder. This one feels yeah, I don't know. I, I feel a little bit like the pressure is a little bit less off, which is a nice feeling, but still like the, there will be hard work indeed. But that man, that coming out of that first album, it was just also the way in which it happened. It was crazy. I mean, we finished in South Africa in December, I think in 2014. Mm-hmm. So we finished, we took about a week off for Christmas. And then January 2nd, we started writing the second album. And we were in, we, me and the singer met every day for six months. And then we recorded the album. Man. And then we basically did promo until we went on tour. It was just... That's nonstop. Yeah, and a lot of interviewers were like, why did it take four years? And you're like, well, if you have five minutes, I guess it took four years technically, but we were on tour for about three and a half years, and there was just... There wasn't any break. I think the first couple of interviews, people thought we maybe were on a beach somewhere just chilling Chilling. or something. (laughs) Yeah, and that was not the case. We were just working tirelessly, and then we had to write this album. So that was something that... That was just really... For me personally, that was a really hard time in my life to to find the energy to to do that second album. And when I listen to it, I'm still kind of surprised. In my opinion, I'm really, really proud of it. So I think I'm like, wow, it really turned out great. But for me, it was a lot of duress and a lot of just stress surrounding mm-hmm. that album. But, and I would imagine when you're on tour for three years, it's there's sort of you're in like this surreal state, right? 
because it's yeah. not like normal life. No, it's not. It's constantly like pushed and pulled and taken here well, and flying here in different cities. And the problem, you know, not the problem, but the the construct of why it was difficult was that we were touring before anybody knew who we were for probably I don't know a year, a year and a half. So when the first album came out, all those songs were really old to us. Even Ho Hey, we'd already been playing all these songs for maybe a year maybe close to two years, mm-hmm. we'd already been playing all these songs. So then people were like, nice, this is a new band. And obviously they expect all the, the songs. So, I mean, we, but we only had probably 11 to 13 songs to tour the world and play festivals like Coachella and Lollapalooza in Chicago, Glastonbury. So we had basically no songs. And then we started getting bigger and better time slots. And we were like, all right, I don't know how we're going to do this. We have one album. This is so, you know, how, how many rabbits can you pull out of a hat? Sort of thing. <laughs> right. It was really difficult to, to make that work. And also it was a... So what did you guys was, do? Just like improvise well, some of the a, tunes or... We had a couple songs that were kind of old, but kind of felt like they could work live. Impro- improvise some of the tunes because not... The, the first album is definitely a lot um, quieter and calmer than the mm-hmm. second album. So we'd... we'd We'd rework them for uh, for festivals and stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, it was interesting too. We, I think one summer we played about 53 festivals, which wow. was basically, I think, I think that was all, like literally all the festivals you Everyone. did in two months in a, in a, something like that in the summer a couple of years ago. And the one thing that we, it was interesting to notice was that all the bands, Besides the massive headliners, like if you saw the Chili Peppers, mm. they were ama- you know amazing. But the bands that were more like us in our tier, I guess you could say, it seemed like a lot of the bands, especially at festivals, were trying to be loud and fast. So with our quieter material, we thought, well, why don't we just see what that does? And that was kind of a cool way to stand out, too, was that if you're at a festival and you actually are quiet, that's almost kind of a potent way to stand out. Because every band, I feel like they see 60,000 people and they think... Let's oh, play loud. Let's play yeah. louder, faster, more, more crash cymbal. Like singer, you scream more. Bassist, do more fills. Drummer's like the drummer has to play with yeah, the yeah, arms yeah. up and take yeah. take your shirt off. Drummer, go nuts. Right, body like you know, crowd surf the whole nine. And uh, so I don't know. It's just an interesting thing. I think if you just look at your surroundings, that's another pretty clever way to just say, well, maybe we'll just try that because I see everybody doing this, and it's I don't know, yeah. No, that makes sense though. I mean, it, hey, it worked out, right? Yeah, <laughs> it worked. It I just was, can't, it was all, I can't believe oh, you guys sorry. played that many festivals, and you know, yeah, it was a, that was a pretty intense summer. That was it was every day you'd wake up on the bus at eight a.m. to just do, 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 to some DJ or someone sound checking, and just and then if you if you were able to go back to sleep around noon, I think everyone would start, and you'd just hear like, "Are you fucking ready?" Just <laughs> like just really the most. Uh, a violent, abrasive way to wake up ever, <laughs> ever. <laughs> I don't know. I just pictured the whole entire thing. It's just like a million screaming people and somebody screaming on the microphone. Yeah, like, and then yeah! you just get off, get off the, get off the bus, and you have no idea where anything is. And I mean, I'm not complaining. It's just a very funny. It's a classic. Any musician that tours like that, they'll be like, "Yep, I know that." So I know that pain so right. well. <laughs> right. And that's the thing. It's like so. It's not a surreal. I mean, it is a surreal way of sort of living for three years, and then you know, then you got to come yeah. home, and then you're like, "All right, I got to get back to life. I got to start writing this record." Blah blah blah. You know, all of that. One. I think one really important thing I have to say too is because you've mentioned about keeping in mind that you have a big audience, and I think that's really important to keep in mind is that the people listening to this. The biggest surprise for me was that there's so many bands doing it. There's like these middle class, hardworking bands 
that have families and have really cool, successful lives as musicians. When I was, you know, younger, like 12 and 13, 14, I thought either you are the Red Hot Chili Peppers or you are living with your mom and you're broke and you're homeless and you're, you know, right. And just touring incessantly, there's so many bands out there that are doing it that they're not Coldplay, but they're not doing the open mic. They are mm -hmm. able to buy a 15-passenger van. They have kids at home. They're able to send money home. They're able to do meet and greets. They're able to sell albums. They're able to be on Spotify. I mean, anybody could be on Spotify, but you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah. And that was, that was a really cool revelation that I thought didn't exist. And there's so many, you know, in that 600 capacity to 3,500 capacity, uh, whether it's a venue or like a seated theater, like a Radio City Music Hall, whatever, right. whatever it might be. And I think that was really cool to realize that um, there is a life for musicians that they might not realize. It's just because like for me, ignorantly, I really thought unless you're Weezer, unless you're, you know, Led Zeppelin, you're probably, it's probably not even worth trying. So right. it's a, that's, and that's a dangerous mindset to put yourself in. So I think that was really cool for me to realize that even at all the festivals, you'd start to see these bands and maybe you wouldn't, they're not known on some sort of massive level, but you see, wow, they're, they're happy. Mm -hmm. They're having fun. They're doing what they love to do. And so I thought that was a really cool revelation that I had uh, just through touring. There's since doing this, since I started this podcast, uh, I'm realizing that more and more too. I mean, there's like, do you know, Big Head Todd and the Monsters? Or they're from, they're yeah. from Denver, right? So I think they're from Denver or Boulder. And there's a yeah. song that I think because it's local, but there's a, there's a song called, uh, is it Bittersweet Love or something? Uh, that gets uh, Bittersweet Symphony. But, yeah, oh, bit, or, no, no, no. Bittersweet Symphony no. is the verb. Um, yeah. Um, it's something bittersweet. Yeah. I think. Why can't I but, think bittersweet surrender? Yeah. Yeah. And that gets played a lot because there's the, they're local, I think. But uh, right. So yeah. like those guys. So like Brian's a buddy of mine, the drummer, and you know they oh, cool. they've been playing for years, and I mean they've been around for twenty years, and they tour. They have a bus and a trailer, and they you know they sell out you know five, six, seven, eight hundred seat clubs, maybe fifteen hundred seat clubs. You know yeah. they play Red Rocks every year. It's like not that's, a bad gig. That's cool. I mean it's it's so funny that. Yeah, if you have this unrealistic expectation, it's um, it's not good. So, I mean, that, I think that's a perfect example right there. Yeah, that's something, definitely something to keep in mind. Of just, you know, it's just a bit. It's just a, it's a business, and maybe it's just a, kind of a small business. You know, that's cool. Yeah. Everybody makes their money, and yeah, no, for sure. I think that's good. So, um, so for everyone listening, if they want to check you out, you said that you you only have. Uh, I'm looking at your tour dates now. So, oh man, you're gonna be like you're gonna be right up the street from me in in December. Um, Where is that? Is that the LA show or no? Uh, San Oakland, Fran? Oakland. Yeah, oh, the, cool. Yeah, if you wanna, you can talk. You can on Skype. But if you wanna come out to that show, just let me know. Oh, cool. I appreciate that. I definitely will. You can see me not drum probably. <laughs> drum <sometimes>, but. <laughs> Um, but you, I mean, yeah, you guys are going to be in Washington. You'll be in Florida, uh, Seattle, San Diego, LA, o Oakland, San Francisco. So if anyone wants to see them now is sort of the last time for a little while, right? You guys are, so are you guys not going to be, uh, touring as heavily in 2018? Yeah, I think that we always say we need time off and then things do tend to come up that we say yes to. But, uh, right. I think it's pretty, I feel confident saying that we'll, these, these 10 shows coming up in the United States is probably the last time you'll see us for, uh, um, at least six months, you know, from January to at least June 1st, I really don't uh, see us doing any, any gigs for that matter. So I think it's, 
if people are into that, they should come out. If not, that's fine too. <laughs> <laughs> I think they should. I think they should. And you guys will be on the East Coast and the West Coast. So there's plenty of opportunity for people to see you. And one last question. I read this somewhere and I want to see if it's correct or not. That you guys didn't come up with the name of your band. It was the person, it was someone who called, they, they had the name wrong uh, and said that you guys were the Lumineers and you guys weren't the Lumineers. That's correct. Um, so what happened to the Lumineers? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think they're on MySpace still. I think they're probably myspace.com slash Lumineers and we added the. <laughs> so I don't know if ours still exists. I've never, I haven't been on it in a decade probably, but um, I think we were myspace.com slash the Lumineers at one point. So what happened was we had a show in um, Jersey City, New Jersey, at yeah. this little club called, little club called Lucky Sevens. Mm-hmm. And at the time we were actually called, uh, I think we were called Wesley Jeremiah, the singer in my first name. Right. And which was a terrible name because the sound guys at these local clubs thought it was one guy showing up. And then we'd show up with the drum set, synthesizer, bass, <laughs> guitar, all this stuff. And he was like, what the hell? So that was a bad name. And we had never been de- like never been, uh, what's the word, MC'd before ever. Right. And this guy was like, hey, these guys are, you know, from New Jersey. Here's Lumineers. And I guess the band Lumineers were playing next week and there was some foul up. <laughs> and after the show, I, I think I said, yeah, that's a cool name. Lumineers. It doesn't, I've never even heard that word. Right. That's kind of, that's kind of perfect. It kind of sounds like light. It's, you know, it has this kind of vague vagary about it that just felt, okay, I like that. And let's just use that. And then we just used it and there's been no qualms about it since. So, I like so it. far, so good. <laughs> I like it. That I just read it and I was like, all right, let me see, let me see how much, uh, how much truth there is to that. So, um, but Jeremiah, I want to one, I want to thank you for spending all this time with me, spending two days with me actually, uh, yesterday and today. I really appreciate it. The insight was was invaluable uh, for the list for me and for the listeners as well. I also want to congratulate you on all the success that you've had for putting in all the hard work. Uh, you know, getting to that point where where opportunity and preparation meet, and you guys have have taken advantage of that beautiful. So I applaud you for that, man. No, thank you for your kind words. That means a lot. And yeah, if there's any way to to give back from what we've learned, it's uh, I think that's always something. That's probably the most positive thing we can do is just try to tell people that there's hope or that you can do. Uh, you know, I don't know, just give insight to a, a field that can feel pretty murky and dark at times. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. <laughs> and I, I mean, I get the emails about it frequently. You know, so I. Oh, I bet. So I appreciate it. I know the listeners appreciate it. There's a ton of ton of nuggets in here. So I uh, really do cool. appreciate it. So, uh, right. and I will, uh, I'll talk to you soon. I appreciate you doing this. Yeah, you too, Nick. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. There you have it. The one and only Jeremiah Freights. I hope you dug that. I definitely did. That was a long conversation. We did that over two different Saturdays early in the morning. So I appreciate him doing that. I appreciate you listening. Also, if you dig the podcast, you get a lot of value out of this. Please give back by going to the Patreon page or you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash support. And Patreon is a way that you can give a dollar, two dollars, three dollars, five dollars, twenty dollars, a hundred dollars a month. And that helps keep the lights on. It helps pay people. It helps put out new content, all of those things. And as you know, we're rolling out more content. We started on Mondays, then on Monday and Friday, now Monday, Wednesday and Friday, and more things to come in the future. Thanks to your support. And you can learn about all of the perks for being a Patreon member by going to drummersresource.com forward slash support, or just go to patreon.com and search for drummers resource. And I hope you will do that. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.